Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In this final chapter of Hebrews, the writer has been encouraging his readers, Jewish Christians, who have been persecuted, who have been isolated, who have found themselves cut off from the tradition that they grew up in, Tempted to return to the world that they left. The writer is encouraging the reader about what it means to be a Christian. And how we behave in the world in which we live. At the beginning of the chapter he said in verse 1 we practice brotherly love. In verse 2 we exercise hospitality. In verse 3 we help the prisoners and those who are being mistreated. In verse 4 we maintain purity in our marriages. In verse 5 and 6 we practice contentment. In verse 7 we fondly remember our leaders. In verse 8, we remember that Jesus is the source and the power in order to continue in this thing called the Christian life. There really is no Christian life apart from Christ. After writing about conduct, he brings up the subject of Christian convictions in verse 9. We carry convictions and then our convictions carry us. We were warned to guard against strange doctrines and teachings in verse 9. In that context, we're to establish and strengthen our hearts in the teachings of grace. We understand, hopefully better than most, there are people who follow strange doctrine, false teaching. It makes perfect sense to us because some of us grew up in a world where there were religious observances. Some of us grew up in a world where you had no religion whatsoever. But what you believe about God and what you believe about Jesus and what do you believe about this world is going to affect who you are. Some of the Hebrew Christians were returning to diet and discipline. 
as a way to have a right relationship with God. There were many benefits to diet and discipline. But diet and discipline can't make you holy or pure or clean or righteous or acceptable to God. And so part of the point that the writer has been making is that it's Jesus, not religion, that makes you have a right relationship with him. In some ways, rituals and ceremonies can cause us to come to a wrong conclusion, to take our focus away from Jesus and away from grace. Now the writer's going to describe the true basis for Christian communion in verses 10 through 14. Christian consecration in verses 15 and 16. And then he's going to address some of his concerns about leadership in verse 17. False doctrine, strange teachings will always diminish the nature of God and the character of God as it's revealed in the Bible. False doctrine and false teaching will have a wrong view about God. They'll have a wrong view about Jesus. They'll have a wrong view about salvation. And if you have a wrong view about God and if you have a wrong view about Jesus, you can't have a right view of salvation. So the author is going to provide warning. And some of the wrong teachings, again, were based not just on the wrong view of Jesus or the wrong view of God, but the wrong view of sacrifice. And that's what we learn in verses 10 and 11. And so, since Jesus is our high priest, and since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to warn once again, which will it be? The altar in the tabernacle in Jerusalem or the altar at Calvary? If Jesus is our high priest, and he is. If Jesus is our shepherd, and he is. If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, verse 9. And since he redeemed us in verse 12, he equips us in verse 21. We live for him here, according to verse 13. We live for him later in heaven, according to uh, the, the end of the chapter. We gladly and patiently accept suffering for his sake, in verse 13. We sacrifice for Jesus in verses 15 and 16. And our sacrifice is made not only with the words that we speak, but also the works that we do. And so the author is going to bring to our attention the sacrifice of our lips and the sacrifice of our hands. Why? Because the Hebrew Christian is thinking in his or her mind, Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm walking away from Judaism. What about the temple in Jerusalem? What about the priesthood in Jerusalem? What about the sacrifices in Jerusalem? Think about everything that I'm giving up. And the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, even though you might think of it that way, of giving up the priests and giving up the temple and giving up the sacrifices, you've gained everything that you need when you have Jesus. And the reason why this becomes important to each and every one of you is because it may not be the temple and sacrifices and priests that you have to be concerned about. It's other kinds of things that you have to be concerned about. Your family and your friends and the people who wonder what in the world are you thinking and what in the world are you doing? 
And so the basis of our Christian communion is talked about in verses 10 through 14. Look what it says in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the Old Testament and, and the, 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 what's spoken of about altars will have probably no idea what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What is he talking about? He's talking about the altar that was placed in the temple in Jerusalem. The altar was the place where you have friendship and fellowship with God. The altar was the place where the sacrifice was made so that sin could be dealt with, so that you could talk to God. And so the point that the author is making as he's writing to Hebrew Christians living in the first century is what is going to be the basis of our fellowship with God? How can we have a right relationship with God and how can we have a fellowship with each other? Part of the Christian living is friendship and fellowship and communion with God and with each other. And this is going to become so very, very important, particularly if the people that you grew up with, the people that you love, the people who you used to walk with don't want to walk with you. Part of Christian living is friendship and fellowship and communion with the saints our communion is based on Calvary. Now remember, I'm not talking about Calvary Chapel in the church that you go to. I'm talking about that hill in Jerusalem, also known as Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. Calvary is the place where Jesus was executed and died on the cross. So when he says, we have an altar from, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, he's, we, we, he's contrasting the altar that we have with the altar that they have. They have an altar in Jerusalem where they offer sacrifices. We have an altar on the cross of Calvary where Jesus was sacrificed. The basis of communion for them is the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And the basis of fellowship for us is Jesus. There were priests in the earth earthly tabernacle in Jerusalem. And part of the privilege in serving in the temple in the tabernacle was the right of certain priests at certain times for certain feasts to participate either in the grain or the bread that was offered or the meat offerings or the, or the animal offerings that were made. But that wasn't always true. There was one particular sacrifice that you couldn't eat. It was made on the Day of Atonement, and it could not be eaten. Now, there are some 400 references in the Old Testament to the altar. What's interesting to me about that statement, there's 400 plus mentions in the Old Testament of the altar, but the altar is rarely mentioned in the New Testament. And when it is mentioned in the New Testament, it's usually in reference to some sort of Old Testament vision or picture or symbol or type. So when the writer says, we have an altar, it suggests that the writer of the book is a Jew. He doesn't say, you Jews have an altar. He says, we have an altar. I, and, and everything in this book seems to indicate to me that this person is a Jewish person writing to Jewish people about Jewish concerns. 
The writer points out, we as Jews have an altar where sacrifice is made for sins. The priest had no right to eat the meat of that sacrifice. The blood of the sacrifice was carried into the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's an image that many of you are familiar with. Remember, the sacrifice would be made on the altar. The blood would be taken. And then once a year, it would be taken into the Holy of Holies and it was sprinkled on a mercy seat of an ark that was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a gold box where two cherubim, two angels had their wings and the mercy seat became a picture and a type of the presence of God where your where sin was covered and mercy was received. And so the blood of the sacrifice was carried into the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies. And remember, the Holy of Holies represents the presence of God and the sacrificial blood pictures the blood of the Savior, Jesus, who dies for the sins of all humanity. And then the bodies of the sacrificed animals were taken outside of the camp or the congregation, and then it was burned. So you might be thinking, hopefully you're thinking, what in the world is he saying? And why is he bringing this up? John Phillips gives us a great answer. He writes, quote, The great brazen altar in the temple court still beckoned to the Hebrews, but no matter how attractive the symbol seemed with its appointed priest performing a divine service originally divinely ordained and hollowed by the custom of centuries, the Christian had no part in that altar. It was obsolete to go on offering the blood of bulls and goats to God after the shedding of Christ's blood was an insult, not an inspiration. Believers have a better altar a better sacrifice, unquote. That's the point that he's making. Again, I want you to think about this. The Jewish person in their mind thinking, I'm going to go back to Judaism. The writer says, why would you do that when you have everything in Jesus? Because sometimes we wake up in the morning and we think, I'm going back to the life that I used to live. The emptiness the loneliness, loneliness, the darkness, the guilt. I'm going to go back to that other world. I'm going to go back to a religious world. Or I'm going to go back to a world of addiction. I'm going to go back to a world of, of, of selfishness. I'm going to go back to whatever kind of world that you used to be in. And you're wondering if you should go back to the world. And over and over again, the testimony in the Bible is, is why would you do that when there's when there's life and there's love and there's cleansing and there's hope. One of the strange teachings and one of the false teachings, again, were the rules and the rituals of Judaism that that could serve as a legitimate expression of communion with God and acceptance by God. But again, that's the world that you live in. You live in a world where people will ask the question, aren't there a number of different ways where a person can be acceptable to God? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no. You see, remember there were Jewish people who were still operating under the assumption, well, if Christianity doesn't work out for me, then I can always go back to practicing Judaism. The reoccurring theme of the book has been, no, this isn't about going back 
to something else that may or may not work. Remember, the purpose of the strange teachings and the false teaching was to carry you away from Jesus and to carry you away from the doctrines of grace. And that's what false doctrine does. They'll carry you away from grace. False teachings emphasize ritual over grace. False teachings don't profit us in our spiritual growth. False teaching is based on a wrong sacrifice. And so the Jewish sacrificial system was unable to make a person pure or acceptable to God. And by the way, I don't expect everybody to be familiar with the Jewish sacrificial system, but it's found in the book of Leviticus. And if you go back to Leviticus and you read the story of the sacrifices that are contained, you'll read about burnt offering and grain offering and peace offering and sin offering and trespass offering. And you think about all of the animals that were killed and all of the sacrifices that were made and how many people had a right relationship with God because of those sacrifices. Not a single one. Not a single person. The writer of Hebrews argues persuasively that the type and the symbolism would cover and postpone but there was there was only ever going to be one solution to the problem of guilt. There was only ever going to be one solution to the problem of sin. And it was going to be that God himself would have to intervene and that he himself would have to provide a suitable remedy. Only Jesus can provide the necessary means for salvation And again, for the person who balks and says, that's absurd, that seems crazy, that seems unbelievable. And the right answer has to be, the Bible's message is that human beings share a common problem. They're estranged from God. The Bible's reoccurring message is, there's only one solution for that reoccurring problem, and that's Jesus. And so in verse 11, when he says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Well, again, what is this? And what does it mean? And why is he saying this? The writer is presenting an analogy. In the Old Testament, the bodies of the animals offered and killed on the altar on the Day of Atonement were not eaten, but they were burned outside the camp. That you find in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 21. And again in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27. Well, why was that? Why did they take it and burn it? Because it was going to become a type and a picture of the future. I want you to think it through. Every sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament was a picture of the sacrifice that would be made for you and for me in Jesus. And so who is our sacrifice? Jesus. Who is the ultimate sacrifice for sin? Jesus. Jesus is killed. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews sees in this 
picture of the Old Testament, a picture of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, because Jesus was crucified outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem, according to John chapter 19, verse 17. So you have the temple mount and the temple proper and the sacrifice that's made and then the, the sprinkling that is made. But for the picture of this writer, he's saying, don't you see the images, the pictures, the the previews that were given to us in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy of our Messiah who would come. And so in verse 12, he points that out. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to, to the Hebrew person who's saying, then what's the whole purpose of being a Jew? And what's the whole purpose of being a Hebrew? And why do we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Are you trying to tell, tell me that I as a Jew growing up in a Jewish culture and being a Jewish person, it's, it's one vast illustration for a watching world of how God wants to deal with humanity? And the writer of Hebrews says, yeah. And you might think, this is a fairly extravagant illustration. But remember how dark this world is, and remember how wicked this world is, and remember how strong the unbelief is. Remember how hard-hearted people are, that even when you put the truth right underneath their nose, they can't smell it. When you put the truth right before their eyes, they can't see it. And so when he says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people, you know what that word sanctify means. It means set them apart with his own blood. Jesus sets you apart. You're no longer a part of a world that denies God and denies Jesus and denies the sacrifice. And he says, and he suffered outside the gate. The picture is Jesus is crucified on the crossroads where the gates exiting the city so that people who are traveling north and people who are traveling south and people who are traveling east and west, they could look at Jesus hanging on a cross and laugh at him, and spit at him, and reject him. That's why the writer says, therefore let us go forth to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Think of the context in which you're reading. The Jew says, I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to go back to the temple. I want to go back to the sacrifice. I want to go back to the priest. And the writer of Hebrews says, you need to leave the temple, the priest, the sacrifice, and walk outside and go to the place where Jesus went. Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So what is, what is the writer saying? We go with Jesus. We leave the camp. Now for the Jew, it's the congregation of Jerusalem. For the Christian, it means we leave the world which we used to identify with. 
It isn't just about being Italian. You get, when you get saved, if you're Italian, you get to, to remain Italian. Isn't that cool? If you're Irish, you get to remain Irish. There are going to be cultural and, and, and linguistic things that are unique to your culture and, and the way that you grew up. That's not what he's, he's not asking you to leave your culture or leave your language or leave your family. That's not the point that he's making. The point that he's making is we are no longer participants in a world that rejects God and rejects Christ. Because remember, that's the world in which many of us grew up in where they go, you don't want to believe what the Bible says about God. And you don't want to believe about what the Bible says about Jesus. And you don't want to believe what the Bible says about the solution to this problem. And so the writer is saying we no longer participate in the world's system, in the world's practice. By extension, we don't participate in the ceremonial law, in the Levitic, Levitical law. Our altar, verse 10, isn't like the altar in, in the tabernacle. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar... Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Paul will use that issue of the altar to explain and contrast with the people that he's writing to about the source of our worship. Our altar is the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus sanctifies us by his blood. So what's the application for the Hebrew reader? Make a break from Judaism. Turn your back on the temple sacrifices. Trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. And you might think, I'm not a first century Jew. So what is it saying to me? What does this mean to me? It means we turn our backs on any religion or any relationship that asks us to reject Jesus, to reject his love, to reject his sacrifice. We turn our back on any philosophy, any religion, any idea that asks us, well, you know, it's okay for you to be a Christian and it's okay for you to trust Jesus, but you know what? You need to be a little bit more open-minded and make sure that you believe that other people can find other ways to God. And you go, I know that sounds... Like it's a nice thing to say, but it's completely contrary to what the scriptures say. The scripture says the universal problem, sin. The universal solution, Jesus is the savior. So we turn our backs on salvation by works. We turn our backs on salvation by character. If I'm good enough, if I'm smart enough, doggone it, people will like me. We turn our backs on religion. In what sense? A religion that says, it's okay if you're spiritual. It's okay if you're religious. It's okay if you participate in sacraments and rituals and ordinances. 
Because you don't really need to just simply trust Jesus. We turn our backs on anyone and everyone who says, tell me what you believe, and you say, Jesus, and they say, what else? And you say, nothing else. And they go, but there's got to be more. There's got to be something more. And you can go, hey, you know what? There's a whole lot. There's a whole lot. We turn our back on ordained priesthood and ceremonial ordinances that hold out the invitation that you'll be accepted by God. But what about the person who doesn't even believe there's a God? You know, the Bible says, only the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Do you realize that you have to learn, you have to actually be taught that there is no God? You have to deny your eyes in creation. You have to deny your conscience. You have to look around and you go, but tell me how everything got here. Can, tell me how it is that human beings have a conscience. Tell me how they have a mind. How, tell me what it is about us that, that, that makes us long for something more than the reality in which we exist. And then you open up the pages of your Bible and you read in the Bible that God has placed eternity inside of your heart. And it resonates with you because you realize that eternity has been placed inside of your heart. We turn our backs on religion without grace. We turn our backs on Christianity without Christ. You laugh, but you understand what I'm saying. Are there Christians who go, I'm a Christian? Okay, tell me a little bit else about it. I'm a Christian, but I'm not the Christian who believes in Christ or believes in heaven or believes in hell or believes in salvation by grace through faith. Tell me again what kind of a Christian you are. The kind of Christian who doesn't believe anything about the Bible. And you say, silly me, I thought Christianity had something to do with Christ. And what the Bible says... So what happens? What happens if the church asks Jesus to leave? Well, we leave with him. We go with Jesus. So when a church says, Jesus, you're no longer welcome here. Jesus, you, your sacrifice is no longer welcome here. Jesus, your words are no longer welcome here. Jesus, your love is no, no longer welcome here. Then we go with him. That word, when you come to the end of the verse, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Reproach is one of those words that means shame, ridicule, isolation. We bear his reproach. Jesus is cut off from his family. Jesus is cut off from his friends. Jesus is denied by the religious establishment. Jesus is spit on. Jesus is stripped. Jesus is killed. These are fairly shameful things to have happen. Our altar is the sacrifice of Jesus. 
He sanctifies us by his blood. And look again in verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Again, I think of the context. Jewish writer writing to Jewish people about a Jewish city called Jerusalem. The Jew in the first century, when this book was written, there is drama and struggle. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is at risk. The Jew has Jerusalem. The Jew has the temple. The Jew has the altar. For here we have no continuing city. Most Jews loved Jerusalem, and rightly so. It's God's holy city. In that city is the temple. In that city was the only acceptable sacrifice that could be offered. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish world. It was the geographic center of worship and fellowship and sacrifice. But the writer of this book says... We have no such city. Our city is a heavenly Jerusalem where Jesus rules. Our city isn't Denver. It isn't San Francisco. It isn't Los Angeles. It isn't New York. We don't have a religious city. We're not like the Hindus who go to a particular holy place or like the Buddhists who venerate the place where Buddha grew up. We don't go to Mecca and Medina like Muslims and make the Hajj because that's our holy city. We have a holy Jesus and we have a heavenly city that isn't located here. We don't long for a city that's here. We long for a city that's there. Our city is Jerusalem where Jesus rules. Our city is the city where the sacrificed lamb is honored and worshipped and glorified. And that's why our tiny little church in this tiny little place becomes a sacred place because we can come here. And we know we're in Littleton. We know we're in Colorado. But the thing that makes this holy is because this is the place where we close our eyes and we see an invisible city that we know exists where the Jesus who is the king of our life is worshiped and glorified. And so there's this, just this tiny pocket. There's this tiny place because guess what? I I had a call on my radio program today from a woman who said that her daughter was being threatened by a principal who asked her to hide her cross or not wear it at all at school. That this is unacceptable. You can't wear your cross to school. And she says, is that right? Is that legal? Is, Is that even possible? It's not legal. It's wrong. But that's the world in which we live. We live in a world that says, at school, you can't honor God. In your workplace, be prepared not to honor God. For some of you in your home, you might have a husband, a wife. You might have a family member who says, 
this is a place where we don't honor God and we expect you to respect our wishes. This isn't a place where we will honor, worship, or glorify the God of heaven. And your heart breaks. And you ask, is there any place where I can go? Is there any place where I can go? Where I can gather with like-minded people where we can honor and worship and glorify God. In turning to Jesus, it meant for many Jewish people, they lost their city. They lost their temple. They lost their sacrifices. They lost their priests. But the writer of Hebrews says, But Jesus is your sacrifice. Jesus is your priest. And your brothers and sisters in Christ are a living body. We are joined and fitted together. You being many are one body joined and fitted together, forming a temple where we can honor him and praise him and glorify him. And so the expression of our Christian consecration is brought out. This is why he's saying this, and this is why he's saying it in the context. Look at verse 15, therefore, and you can see that over and over again. This is the third time. Therefore, by him, let us continue to offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name Jesus is the basis of our fellowship why therefore in light of what I've just said therefore by him that's Jesus let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise remember the Jewish person says you know what I remember the day of atonement when we would when we would offer the 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 sacrifice or the Passover I remember the days I remember the days they would go back to all of the feast days in Leviticus chapter 23 and they would remember how throughout that year it would be a time of celebration and sacrifice Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering. And they want to return to that. I have to admit, I don't like to admit it, but I'm going to admit it. Not to be self-serving. But hopefully to help someone here. When I became a Christian, I grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition. And when I gave my heart to Jesus and when I gave my life to Jesus, there were certain things inside of me that wanted to go back to that tradition, that wanted to go back to those candles and go back to that sacrifice and go back to a midnight mass and go back to all of those things that I remember as a kid growing up that were fond memories. And there's nothing wrong with having fond memories. That's not the problem. The problem was what those celebrations and symbols meant. It was the celebrations and the symbols that suggested that you need something more than Jesus. You need something more than grace. You need religion. You need ceremony. You need ritual. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's not true. Well, I want to offer a sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, then offer a sacrifice of, of praise to God. Jesus is the basis of our fellowship with one another. And since Jesus is the basis of our fellowship with one another, 
He's also the expression of our worship. In the Old Covenant, there were year-round celebrations. You find that in Leviticus chapter 1, or 21, 22, and 23. Like I said, burnt offerings, Hebrew, olah. Grain offering, minikah. Peace offering, shalem. Sin offering, shatah. Trespass offering, asham. The writer of Hebrews says, no, we come to God through Christ. We don't offer grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings. Those have already been made. We offer a different kind of sacrifice. We praise the Lord. Now again, remember we live in a culture that that doesn't dignify that statement, that trivializes it and then mocks it. In our culture, when we say praise the Lord, they think Homer, they think cartoon, they think, who's the guy who lived next door to Homer Simpson? Yeah, Ned Flanders. Christians are a caricature. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And that's, again, that's what the culture does. They laugh and they go, yeah, it's a caricature of Christianity. That's what Christians do. They praise the Lord. Isn't that special? But the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's a reason why we do what we do. We honor God with the fruit of our lips. So what is it that God desires under the new covenant? Praise. Worship. With our mouth. With our lips. God desires praise and thanksgiving. He's not interested in animals and grain In the New Testament, we're all priests able to give offering of praise and thanks to God. And so the writer of Hebrews invites you from your heart to be truly grateful that your sin has been forgiven. That it's been washed and cleansed. And that you have a promise of the future. The sacrifice of praise is expressed in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 12. There's hints of it in Psalm 54, 6. We see the mention of the fruit of our lips in Isaiah 57, 19. In the Old Testament, they would say, Thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee. I lift up my hands unto thy name. We worship him. In verse 16 it says, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Now think about what the writer is saying. He's not saying, I'm inviting you to participate in a Christianity where all you have to do is feel good in your heart and and speak with your mouth. He's not suggesting that that's the end of it. He's saying, worship God with your lips, of course. From your heart, of course. He goes, but do not forget to do good and share. In other words, this isn't a Christianity where you just simply go to church and you simply sing songs. This is a kind of Christianity where you express spiritual worship that leads to spiritual works. Now think about what you're reading. Well, I go to church, I sing, I read my Bible. Isn't that enough? The sacrifices of praise coming from the lips of his people are wonderful. 
But the writer says, there's something more. Do good and share. Praise from our lips is accompanied, and I mean this in the most reverential way possible, movement of our hips. Not just the movement of our lips. And movement of our hips, I don't mean shaking it back and forth when you're doing the worship. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the movement of your hips that means that you go in a direction of walking in love and support and mutual encouragement. Our prayers and praise provide power to do good, to share, doing good and sharing. Look at what the text says. This pleases God. Oliver Green offers this insight. He writes, quote, you will notice that there are three sacrifices that please God, and we should not fail to offer these sacrifices continually. First, confessing his name. Second, living a holy life, doing good. Third, giving to those who are in need, sharing our blessings with those less fortunate than ourselves. He is a hypocrite who praises God with his lips, but not a holy life or a life of faith, sharing blessings with others. Such a person may put on a convincing outward show, but God looks on the heart, unquote. God looks on the heart. But guess what you look on? The outward appearance. You don't have the ability to look into each other's hearts. But you do have the ability to watch each other's lives. <laughs> We're Christians. We offer at least three sacrifices. The sacrifice of our body in Romans 12.1. In verse 15, we sang the praises of the sacrifices of praise. In verse 16, we talk about the sacrifices of doing good. What's interesting to me, look what it says. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. How is God pleased when you present your body? How is God pleased when you present your mouth? How is it that he's, he, he's pleased when you do wonderful things for each other? We offer these sacrifices through Jesus. You might think, well, isn't giving to the poor good? Yeah. Isn't providing help for homeless good? Yes. Isn't feeding the starving good? Yes. All of those things are good. But it's not a sacrifice. Because unless you go to God through Jesus, all of the goodness and all of the sacrifices that people make from God's perspective are meaningless. Does it provide a temporary help? Yes. You don't look on the heart, but you do look on the outside. Again, Someone wrote, it was Mary Peter, she wrote, To all our prayers and praises, Christ adds his sweet perfume, and love the censer raises, these odors to consume. It was her way of saying, our sacrifices, our praise, our worship goes to God through Jesus. And here in verse 16, we find, like I said, the third sacrifice, the offering of our possessions. 
We use our material resources for good. We share with those in need. And this is pleasing to God, but it also gives an opportunity to reveal to each other something that's important. Again, Oliver Green writes, before I read what he writes, I, I, I want to say one more thing. The word share is the Greek word koinonia. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. It means more than just to divvy up the goods. It means share physically, but it also seems to imply mental, emotional support. So do we share sorrow? Yeah. Joy. We divide the sorrow. We share the joy. Material goods, yes. Spiritual resources, good. But the sharing doesn't seem to be limited to the things we possess. Again, Oliver Green writes, and I quote, there are so many things that we can share with others. It may be only a kind word or a smile from the heart of love and understanding. It may be a glass of cold water given in the name of Jesus. It may be a gift, large or small, if we're able to help with the necessities of life, food, a pair of shoes for a needy child. There are so many ways by which we can share our blessings with those who are less fortunate. Most of us need not look long or far until we find someone less fortunate than we are. It's easy to overlook opportunities to serve and honor and praise God by helping others. And that's the point that the writer is making. It isn't just simply helping each other. It's helping each other in such a way that you glorify God. Let's connect the thoughts. Let's connect the writer's thoughts. Strange doctrine, false doctrine, hinders fellowship. It hinders worship. It even hinders doing good. We offer sacrifice and praise through our Lord Jesus. The Lord of heaven deserves praise. But he will only accept praise through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that that's why God is able to hear from you and be honored by you? This is why the New Testament says, he who has the Father has the Son. But he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. Jesus is the only thing that the Father accepts. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's one God, one mediator between God and men, the, Christ, the man Christ Jesus. Now, again, think for a moment. Praise, sacrifice. Prayers, sacrifice. Good works, sharing material blessings, spiritual sacrifices. What else could we offer? According to Psalm 51, you can offer a broken heart. You know what's interesting? The Bible says when you're hurt, when you feel all alone, when you feel crushed, when you feel abandoned, 
and the darkness is squeezing in around you, the Bible says he's near to the brokenhearted. He's near to those who are crushed in spirit. And this is interesting because our flesh says he's nowhere to be found. He's nowhere to be found. Why am I so hurt? Why do I feel so dark? Why do I feel so alone? And the Bible says exactly the opposite. In that darkness and in that loneliness, he is present. And so there's a final exhortation to respect your leaders. It says, obey those who rule over you. So for the next 15 weeks, I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> just kidding. Just, just joking with you a little bit. It says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. In the chapter we're told, remember earlier in verse 7? Remember those who rule over you. And remember I said, it means remember your Christian leaders with fondness. Remember the leader leads. The leader speaks the word of God. The leader exhorts the people to follow the pattern established by Jesus and the apostles. This comes as a shock to a lot of people. Christianity isn't a democracy where the majority rules, but it's also not anarchy where everyone does whatever they please. Christianity really is a theocracy where God rules through Christ and through godly leaders who are called by God. For the person who says, no, the church is run by leaders, the Bible doesn't disconnect them from Christ or disconnect them from the God of the Bible. So when the writer says, and be submissive, the reason why he says that is because we're human beings and we resent authority and we rebel against authority. And resentment and rebellion didn't begin in the 60s with my generation. The context is Christian leaders. And look what it says. For they watch out for your souls. The writer speaks of the rule of the leader and the responsibility of the leader. The leader is not the Lord over people's lives. We're not earthly princes or kings. And this is our little kingdom. The New Testament reoccurring theme. We are shepherds. We are under shepherds. We are servants. We provide spiritual food. We provide spiritual protection. We provide care. We're supposed to run after the people who have gone astray. We're supposed to run after them and beg them to turn from their sin. We're supposed to run after them when addiction takes over again or darkness takes over again or difficulty takes over again and they look like they want to bail. We exhort those who are growing cold. We encourage the weak. We visit the sick. We urge recognition of spiritual gifts. We encourage people to help. We exercise hospitality. We remain pure in our lives and in our marriage, both in our submission to Christ and our example to others. The elders' responsibilities are noble, commendable, honorable, and sometimes difficult. 
In a single sentence, the writer outlines the rule of the elder, the responsibility of the elder, but also the reactions of the elder. When the elder is leading, it seems that he's going to be met with one of two things. Joy or grief. We want to serve with joy. But it isn't always the case. Joy provides profit. Grief, according to the writer of Hebrews, no gain. You've seen the the, the bumper sticker or the t-shirt that says, no pain, no gain, no grief, all joy. The writer of Hebrews brings a welcome word. Again, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying this. If it's possible to make life easier for your leader, try to make it happen. Don't give him grief. Again, John Phillips writes, At the judgment seat of Christ, the joy or sorrow of the elder will be reflected in the gain or the loss of the believer. What a tragedy to be truly saved, but to appear at the judgment seat of Christ as unprofitable. Love would guard against any such thing, unquote, he writes. John MacArthur says, the pastors, the elders of the church exercise the very authority of Christ when they preach and teach and apply the scriptures. But this isn't some sort of Protestant pontificate. That's not the point that the writer is making. Pastors and leaders answer to God, but not in that cultic way of thinking. In the end, they serve the church and they serve Christ and they have to give an account of their faithfulness. And just like leaders can abuse leadership, can presidents abuse their office? Can governors and judges abuse their office? Can husbands abuse their office? Can moms and dads abuse their office? The answer is yes. And they too have to answer to God. What the writer has basically done throughout the chapter, he's given you a different way of thinking. The way of love. The fruit of Calvary. What is the fruit of Calvary? It's the benefits that come when you recognize that Jesus loves you and died for you. This is the fruit of Calvary. Compassion, verses 1 through 3. Chastity and purity, verse 4. Contentment, verse 5. Courage, verse 6. Consideration, verse 7. Consistency, verse 8. Conviction, verse 9. And now, communion, verses 10 through 14. Consecration, verses 16 and 17. And a godly concern, verse 17. A concern for each other. And so this is part of what the the writer is basically doing. He's basically saying to the Christian who's tempted to walk away whether or not this life is a life worth living. He's saying there is no other life. There is no other way to give. There is no other opportunity, if you will, 
to have a right relationship with God. Some people enjoy conflict. Not me. And some people will avoid conflict at all costs. Not me. Jim Dennison in his Truth and Culture Forum today wrote this, and I had to include it. He said, quote, when David was fleeing from King Saul, he sought help from a priest named Ahimelech. However, he didn't tell the priest that Saul was pursuing him. Nor did he confront a man named Doag, the Edomite, though he later admitted, quote, I knew on that day when Doag, the Edomite, was there that he would surely tell Saul, unquote. That's from 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 22. As a result, Doag killed Ahimelech and 85 priests as well as the inhabitants of the town where they lived. The point of this story in the illustration, David's decision to avoid conflict led to a much worse conflict. And sometimes we just want to avoid the conflict. We, want, we don't want to make waves. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to make life difficult for anyone. But we have to confront sin. And we have to tell the truth. Because if we don't confront sin and if we don't tell the truth, then the chances are we'll only make matters worse. And so this writer, this writer is going to have some important things to say before we say goodbye to the book of Hebrews. But that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Lord, I know that for some of us, this is really hard stuff to understand. We don't always understand the context. We don't always understand what's being said. But Lord, I pray that you would help us understand by the Holy Spirit what it is that you want from us. Lord, I I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would give us courage to act on our convictions. That there really is such a thing as right and wrong. There really is such a thing as good and evil. There's really such a thing as hope and grace. Lord, the moment we decide that there is no God and the moment we decide that there is no sacrifice and the moment we decide that there is no solution to the broken condition of human beings, we just simply give in to despair or we make up an explanation that leaves us safe in our sin or at least we think safe and so again Lord we pray we, we're not looking for a fight and we're not looking for a conflict but Lord we pray that we wouldn't ignore when things become hard and when things become difficult and when things become treacherous We commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.